And today's reading is from 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 to 13. You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dare to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people but God, who tests our hearts. We know we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else, even though, as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children among you. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And we also thank God continually because when we received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the wisdom in your word. Thank you that you bring them to life before our eyes and you've brought us here to be able to worship you communally. We pray for Alan as he speaks, Lord, that you would just allow him to speak truth and that you would speak through him. Pray that it would be a blessing to our community. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, we are um, continuing our series uh, in the first and second epistles of uh, Thessalonians. And this week we move into chapter 2, where Paul here is uh, defending his integrity. Um, And just as a summary, what we said last week um, is that Paul was a church planter, and when he went into Thessalonica, he started his new church. But it created enough um, jealousy and enough opposition uh, that a riot broke out. And he and Silas had to skip town in the middle of the night um, to keep from being killed. That's how crazy this riot was. And so after Paul has left, he sends Timothy back to check on them to see how they're doing. And Paul immediately, when Timothy returns, pens this letter back to them. And it's apparent that one of the things that Timothy had reported to Paul that he had picked up on when he was in Thessalonica is that there was some uh, criticism of Paul. Uh, criticism maybe for um, being a coward, running, leaving them, abandoning them so quickly. Um, and, and though Paul is uh, clearly not very concerned about defending his own reputation, he is concerned that the message of the gospel might be thrown out along with his reputation. And so he comes to his defense here. And it's really a defense of the gospel. Uh, but what we're going to be looking at today is the way that Paul defends himself and the things that he has to say about himself because they're, they're really telling for us today. They're telling about how we can understand better what it means to develop a life of integrity like this. 
because listen, we, we all know what it's like to be attacked, right? I'm sure you could all uh, relate to this. Somebody comes after you um, and you get beat up. Not usually physically, but verbally often. It happens all the time. And of course, it's always unjustly, right? I mean, poor me. And, uh, but you know, our spou- as spouses, we're always doing this to each other, right? We're nitpicking and poking um, because obviously you know every button to push that nobody else knows. Uh, family members often get under each other's uh, skin. Uh, your, your coworkers can be nasty jerks at times. Um, and certainly, if nothing else, our politicians have a turn tacking their opponents into a blood sport. Um, and, and very often, those attacks can prove to be very uh, embarrassing and, if not downright hurtful. In fact, let me just confess to you this morning one of my most embarrassing attacks. And it was embarrassing because I was the one doing the attacking. Um, when we lived in England, I coached an American football team, uh, 14 to 16 year olds. and. We were in our very last game of the season. We'd had a perfect season. We'd beaten every team in the country. Um, and we were about to wrap up our last game. We were down by a couple points with a couple minutes left. And we were just kind of casually taking our time to drive down for the winning score to make sure there's no time left. And it was an easy in the bag win. And so it came to third and one. We thought, well, let's just try to get a touchdown. And if not, we'll pick out the first down and fourth down. So we did that, didn't get the first down. And then the ref dared to call out first down the other way. He said, no, that, that was fourth down. Even though every player on both sides of, well, they call it a pitch there, both sides of the field um, said, no, no, it was third down. He said third down. No, fourth down. And we lost the ball. And we lost the game. And, of course, I calmly strolled to the middle of the field and, and nicely pointed out to him his error. Um, no, I didn't because the flag was quickly thrown on me. And being um, an arrogant American who knew more about football in my pinky finger than this ref had learned in his two-hour crash course, I picked up his flag and threw it into the crowd. Um, And he should have thrown me out of the game. Um, And I think the only reason he didn't throw me out of the game is I was the one who was writing his check after the game uh, to pay for his services. And you, you would have thought that it would have calmed down by then. I still remember the words that I said to the man as I handed him his check. I said, this is a gift. You didn't earn it. And walked away. Still makes my blood boil to think about. But it also still embarrasses me um, that I could have done that. Now, that's a good example, I think, of how not uh, to defend yourself. How, how does Paul defend himself here? Because you'll notice he uses words that I couldn't use. Words like, verse 10, holy, righteous, blameless. Uh, something few of us can say when we are attacked. I mean, for me, it's more likely defensive, bitter, downright pissed, right? How could he speak with such confidence about his heart? Uh, how could he actually live the kind of life where he could get away with saying, I lived a life of absolute, pure, holy, righteous, blameless integrity before you. And he could get away with it because they knew it was true. That's what we're going to be looking at here together this morning. How can we live lives of genuine integrity like that? And it's interesting. The word integrity is actually a math term. You love this, Sam. Um, integrity is, comes from the word integer, right? It means a whole number uh, as compared to a fraction, which is a partial number. 
And see, Paul was someone who was the same person in public as he was in private. He was the same person on the inside as he was on the outside. He was the same person on Monday as he was on Sunday. I mean, he was kind of like uh, Horton who hears a who. You guys remember reading that book to your kids? I meant what I said and I said what I meant. An elephant is faithful 100%. How, how did he get a life like that, right? And how can we get lives like that? And the first thing I'd like you to see from this passage is that Paul was actually able to claim that kind of integrity uh, because the people knew it was true, because of how he clearly lived his life as an open book in front of them. Because you'll see, you notice that he starts out in verse one by saying, you know, brothers and sisters. Next, verse two, as you know, Verse 5, you know we never put on a mask. Verse 9, surely you remember. Verse 10, you are our witnesses. Verse 11, for you know. All through here saying, guys, you saw this, you know this. There's no hiding it. Listen, the only reason that Paul was able to claim his integrity among these people was because they had seen it for themselves. They had witnessed it firsthand. And I think what this does, it points us to one of the most critical components of integrity in the life of God's people and its community. Living lives together where we are exposed and vulnerable to one another. Because listen, this is how God created us. He designed us to be creatures of community. We were never meant to live isolated lives pretending to be okay when we're not. We were never designed to live a social media life where we can control and spin what everybody views about what's going on in our lives. Because life is not meant to be a show where we display to everybody how put together we want people to think that we really are. Now I want you to think about why. Why did God design us that way? You see, that's, that's our nature. It's deeply rooted within us to naturally want to convey to the public an image that when we're alone we often cry about or we stress out about with worry and fear as we stare into our mirrors. So why are we so obsessed with something that deep down we all know isn't really true? Why are we so concerned about the spin more so than the honesty? And I think this really hits at the very nature of what sin is in and of itself. Sin turns my heart away from God and therefore, it turns my heart away from other people. And it's designed to really make me think only and care only about myself. Sin makes me think that life is solely about me and my happiness and my goals and my dreams. And the only way that I can face the failure of that pursuit is I face the disappointments in life and frustrations and failures and incompetent referees it is to spend what others see of me so that at least I look better and appear more put together than I really am. Now, how did Paul overcome this tendency that we all have? See, if you put verses four and six together, what he's saying here is we didn't seek the approval of men, and the we is he, Paul and Silas, when they were there. We didn't seek the approval of men, but of God. Now, I want you to think about what this means for just a moment. <clears throat> If life is all about you, then you should pull away from people. And, and you should spin and control how you are viewed. 
You should guard your heart and protect your image because it gives you more power and it gives you more control and more clout. If life is all about you, then grab all the power and all the notoriety that you can. But if life is about God, then honest community is the very thing that you and I most need. And we most need it, I think, for two reasons in particular. First of all, because when you're in a Christian community, you are in a community where everybody agrees on the same standard of living. See, Christians, when they become a Christian, they have to lay aside all of their personal agendas at the door. We don't get to decide any longer how that we want to live our lives. See, if you're a Christian, you have to lay your conservative or your liberal politics aside. If you're a follower of Jesus, your core identity cannot be that you're LGBTQ or that you're a southerner or that you're black or you're white or that you're somebody who lives a better life than those people do. Your whole identity now becomes, what has God designed me to do? What does God require of me? And if you're in a community that's all agreed to be in submission to those same standards, you know what the Bible says, there's no more room for you to talk about my version of the truth because there is no version of the truth. There's only the truth. And then secondly, not only do you have a community with an agreed upon set of standards, but it's a community of fellow forgiven rebels and failures who continually fall short at keeping those standards. See, we all fall short of how we ought to live. None of us can live the way that God requires of us. And so it's okay to be open and honest about it. You, you can be vulnerable and held accountable for your life because it's a safe space to be held tightly by fellow forgiven screw-ups. See, the gospel doesn't create good Christians and bad Christians. It creates thankful, humble screw-ups who have been forgiven for all their messes. And so we can work together as a community, in community, to encourage one another to remember the gospel, to believe that it's all been paid in full, to act and to live as if it's really true that we are rescued and redeemed children who are loved and treasured and valued by God. And we have to do that because everything in your heart and everything in your actions constantly tells you that, that just can't be true. And so we need the vulnerability of community to remind us and to prompt us and to encourage us to remember who we are. Listen, if you don't have community like this, your integrity will become whatever you can get away with. And you will find your life fracturing all over the place into pieces that become so diverse, you'll start to forget yourself who's the real you and what's spin and what's show. Now, that's the first thing. You desperately need community. You need honest, vulnerable community if you want the pieces of your life to come together into an integrated whole. The second thing I want us to notice here uh, from this passage, there are, I think, three particular aspects of Paul's integrity in particular that we can look at together. Um, and the first thing I want you to notice are um, the, the priorities that Paul has. What held Paul's life together is just the very thing we looked at. He, he understood that life was all about God and not about me. See, God was not an add-on to round out his life, but he was central. 
God was not a vitamin supplement to round out the edges where I might be a little bit lacking, but he's everything. As C.S. Lewis puts it, he said once, when he said when he, he was reacting to the, when people say that they like the teachings of Jesus, but they don't really want to submit to him, he said, that is one thing we must never say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing, well, we say patronizing, he's British, patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Because you see, and really this is the, what we part of what we looked at last week, it's the very central theme of the gospel that we have to completely die to ourselves as we come to God. We, we die to our own agendas. We, we die to all of our hopes and dreams for the good life that we've always dreamed of. We even die to using God as a good religious person where we try to get God to give us the things that we really want. And, and listen, here's the central understanding of Paul's new life in Christ. And he says, it's not a mixture of God and me. You know, it's not like God is now my co-pilot guiding me. There, there's no room here for God and country. There are no partnerships going on here. There's, there's no room in this relationship for any agendas or bottom lines that I bring to the table. Because listen, we, if we're honest, we all too often tend to approach God as a me who has God to help him in life instead of as a me who has fully surrendered everything to God and has lost any rights that I ever thought I had to myself. And Paul says, I've died to all of that and I've come alive to Jesus. And if you're still living as a people pleaser, which is the example that he gives us here, I want you to listen to what you're really saying. You're saying, sure, God, God might be the one who saves me, in theory. I mean, he lived, died on the cross. I believe in all that stuff. But it's pleasing people that really makes me feel more saved. It makes me feel more worthy. And essentially what I'm saying is Jesus isn't enough. He's a good supplement. He's, he's a good motivator. He's a great helper. But, but I've still got to please people if I really want to feel okay about myself. And listen, if you are, and God are partners in this relationship, there will be moments where you surrender your life to him and there'll be other moments where it's just too risky and you'll hang on to some control. I mean, that's, that's how you can humiliate a ref on Saturday and still preach the gospel on Sunday. See, if, if you and God are partners, you'll tend to throw out demands and expectations in the form of prayers, obviously, but you'll expect God to deliver, right? And, and deliver in ways that you demand. I mean, even if you're asking for good things like God's presence and, and his peace, you're still gonna be demanding how he does it, how it's gonna feel, when it's gonna come, what it's gonna look like. And if you don't deliver this way, God, I'm mad. Because see, deep down, we still often feel that it's God's job to make me happy. That he's here to help fulfill all of my dreams and reach all of my goals. And there's still a little you sitting on the throne trying to pull all the strings. 
Listen, if you want the benefits that God brings more than you want him, you're still a partner with expectations. And you see, Paul would come to see, frankly, the hard way, which seems to be God's way from my experience, that God is the one who calls the shots. Paul existed just to serve God and not the other way around. And when you forget this, you'll find yourself often angry with God because you'll think, I deserve better than this. I mean, I'm owed. After all I've sacrificed for you, God, surely you could give me better circumstances than this. And you'll become disillusioned with God and you'll eventually give up. And the only thing that I can think of that's worse than that is to actually get your hopes and dreams where the things that you want do come true. And you think God is answering all your prayers exactly the way you ask because now you'll become insufferable with everybody else, condescending and impatient with them. Always saying, what's wrong with you? Why can't you be more like me? Listen, when we refuse to die to self and to live for God, inevitably we end up living for ourselves. And we become the center of our own world. And we will use people instead of caring for them. And true love will become impossible because our lives will become fractured all over the place about how to get instead of how to give. And only those who have been melted as a recipient of this kind of unconditional love are capable of giving it in turn to others. And so that's the first thing. Paul had new priorities. Life is about God, not me. We're not in partnership. We don't cooperate. He calls the shots entirely. Now, the second aspect of Paul's integrity that we see here are not only in his priorities, but he actually backed it up with his actions. And notice in verses seven and eight, he says, we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children among you. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Listen, Paul gave himself to other people extravagantly, passionately. And we'll come back more to look at this again next week. But see, he didn't just dish out some wisdom because it made him sound smart. He didn't just dish out compassion because it made him look kind and caring. But because his relationship wasn't all about him. Rather, he was able to give each person exactly what they needed in the moment because it was for their good and not for his own glory. See, Paul didn't have to use people for, to further his own agenda. He could just serve them for their good. And listen, none of us can love people like that. None of us are, are capable of serving people just for their own good unless your heart is first filled with the rest that comes from knowing that God is fully and completely pleased with you because of Jesus. See, only to the degree that you are filled with an unconditional love that rests on what Jesus did, not what you do, only to that degree uh, that you are really a recipient of unconditional love will you be able to turn around and give that kind of unconditional love to others. Otherwise, you'll spout all the right words of Christianity, but you'll still feel empty and hungry on the inside, and you'll continue to use people to fill yourself up. And so I think this becomes a critical part of what it means to become selfless people who are filled with integrity, is that we have to learn how to take our hearts back to the gospel every day. And you've got to remind yourself over and over and over again that you are loved and you are accepted and you are forgiven by God. I know you don't feel like you are 
I know you don't believe like you are, but you are. You are adored. That he has lived the life that you should have lived. He has died the death that you owe uh, to God. And, and, And that he alone can fill your hungry heart with all the love and all the satisfaction and all the contentment that you're looking for and all the things out there in the world. And Jesus is the only one who can fill your heart with that, fill that hunger uh, in your heart. And see, Paul's actions here of selfless living really stemmed from how, well, that's how God treated me, right? He he was a recipient of God's love in action. The, the, The love of God coming to earth taking on flesh and blood. Why would he do that for me? The the love of God coming and living the life that I owe to him of perfect obedience in my place. The the love of his willingness to die the death that we all deserve to die for our rebellion against him. The love of his rising again from the dead to kill our greatest enemy, death itself. See, that is what fills us up to be able to serve others selfishly. Because when you already have everything that your heart longs for in Jesus, then you don't need to take advantage of people anymore. You don't need to chase after all the promises of the good life. You've already got the good life. It doesn't get any better. And so that's how Paul's priorities and his actions were transformed by the gospel message that he preached. But there's one final aspect I want us to look at here that gave him this kind of integrity. And that was his his actual motives were changed as well. He didn't just look good on the outside because motives do matter, right? And in this situation Paul is dealing with, he was able to say, look guys, my motives were pure and you know it. Verse three, for the appeal, the appeal that we make does not spring from error or impure motives. Verse five, you know that we never use flattery nor do we put on a mask to cover up greed. And again, he could get away with saying that because of how he had lived openly in their midst. They, they knew it was true, because they'd seen it. And let's be honest, in our selfish world, it's sometimes hard to believe it's even possible to have that kind of uh, integrity, those kind of pure motivations for living. You know, it seems like almost everything is just a scheme to get me and my agenda ahead, to, to use people and take advantage of other people. And so it's really, really easy for us to naturally want to mistrust people, to be cynical and suspicious. I mean, even here in our hyper-religious culture, people are often very busy doing all the right things and looking really good on the outside, but for all the wrong reasons, just like the Pharisees were doing. I mean, Jesus, think about this, was more upset with the good religious people than he ever was with the sinners because of how they were using their goodness as a bargaining chip to force God to give them what they really wanted. You know, maybe it was to make God more pleased with them which the gospel tells us Jesus already did for us. Or maybe it was to gain a solid reputation as a good person, which the gospel tells us Jesus has already given to us. Or maybe it was to quiet a noisy conscience so they can feel better about themselves and superior to everyone around them, which the gospel says Jesus has already given us all of that. For some, it's just maybe to make them feel smug and superior and to be able to look down on other people which the gospel tells us we have no need to do anymore because Jesus has already given us everything. And I think as a result, our our Appalachian religious culture, which is, I think, very much like Jesus' own religious culture, often feels a bit hollow and a bit shallow. It's often more about show than substance. See, a lot of passionate talk 
about looking good on the outside and living right, but still often filled with selfishness and bitterness and anger and yelling at referees on the inside, right? And to the degree that happens, it invalidates any of the good actions that we actually do. They're worthless. I mean, listen, remember back to the confrontations Jesus had with the religious leaders of his day. I mean, those guys obeyed God better than anybody around here ever could or would. And yet Jesus condemns it because it wasn't done out of love for God. It was done out of love for promoting themselves. So motives matter. And therefore, I think it becomes necessary for each one of us to answer this question today. And as, why do you obey God? Right? When you do obey, why do you obey? Is it to get things from God or maybe to avoid bad things from God? Or is it done out of love and amazement that a holy God like this could love a messed up loser like me? And listen, one of the best ways to test yourself to find out is to look when you do something good, when, when you obey in all the right ways, do your actions need to be noticed? Do they need to be seen and praised and rewarded? And especially, does God need to notice so that maybe his blessings start flowing my way a little bit better now, right? Can you serve secretly and quiet? Now, how in the world can any of us ever get to that place? I mean, Paul said he did, and everyone around him seemed to agree. Where, where do we get this kind of integrity in our lives? If, if Paul's life here is a picture of the kind of person that we can become, how do we get there? And I think the answer comes in, not in Paul, but in the message that he preached. This message that he was so protective of them not to lose. Because, listen, as he tells us here, guys, I just preached the gospel to you. That's all I did. I just gave you the good news of what Jesus had done. Verse 2, with the help of our God, we dared to tell you this gospel in the face of strong opposition. Verse 4, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. Verse 8, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Verse 13, when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is the word of God. See, Paul never preached obedience to him in his authority. He wasn't building the kingdom of Paul, but he preached the good news. And the good news is news about what Jesus did, right? And he thought about that good news and he reflected on that good news and it just oozed out of every pore in Paul's body. See, the good news that God accepts us at our worst because God sees everything inside of us. He sees all of our selfish motives, all of our actions that are really more about me than the good of anybody around me. He sees all of our priorities and our actions that betray what we think we really believe in. And yet, we're far more loved right there in the midst of our brokenness, far more than we could ever dare hope or dream. Because God comes along and says, guys, I love you enough not just to pay for all your messes. I mean, that would be amazing enough. God himself willing to take on the punishment of hell for us. That's incredible. But he says, it, it's more than that. I love you enough to give you all the credit for the righteous life that Jesus lived in your place. I, I will credit all of that to your spiritual accounts so that when I look at you now, all I see is beauty. All I see is perfection. 
And listen, to the degree that you can see yourself the way God says that he sees you, as a flawless beauty, to the only eyes that ever really matter, to that degree you will be freed from the need to suck that validation out of everybody else around you. And you see, Paul could stop thinking about that incredible, amazing news, and it controlled everything about him. And listen, if you don't know this, you will hide the depth of your sin from yourself, right? You'll find ways of justifying it or defending it or rationalizing it. I'm not that bad. I mean, I'm just, just a human, right? You know, they really deserved it. They were, that ref was a jerk, right? He really was. And you'll run back to all the alternatives this world has to offer to try and cover over the insecurities that you still feel on the inside as you try to suck the life and the validation out of them. And you'll be miserable and insecure because deep down, you'll know what a mess you really are. And you'll know all these desperate attempts that you're trying to use to cover yourself, they just aren't working. And listen, you you might even still talk about the love of God. You might crave the love of God. You might go to church every week and faithfully hear the word of God, but it still won't be enough because you're still running back for the functional approvals of your old lovers, pleasing people, my family, being successful, just happiness in general. And your Christianity, if you actually have any at that point, will be fractured at best. Because on the one hand, you'll say, this is the gospel I know to be true, that Jesus lived and died for me. But I also know that I won't really feel loved. I really won't feel accepted unless my old lovers can affirm me with their well done. This is theoretical. This is real. And so you'll bounce back and forth between believing in Jesus and trusting in your own efforts and your integrity will fall to pieces and it'll be fractured all over the face of your life. See, only when Jesus comes along and says, I see you for who you really are and I love you anyway, can we start to be healed of this? And you see, that's the good news of the gospel that Paul was preaching. And it's what enabled him to be able to die to himself and to die to his old lovers, which for him were clearly his moral superiority and his theological knowledge. He was able to die to all of that and come alive to what Jesus did so that he could love and serve other people selflessly. Listen, God's love for you cannot be theoretical and ever change you. It can't be merely theological. I can spout all the facts and put them in order. That's not gonna change your life. It has to become more real to you than life itself. And you have to immerse yourself in it every day. And you've gotta preach it over and over and over again to your cold, disbelieving heart every morning. And you've gotta meditate on the wonder of it. How could it be that a God would love somebody like me? I can't imagine how it's true, but it is. It's something that you cannot let your heart ever get over, ever move past. And you see, the beauty of all that has got to captivate your heart more than all the other older beauties that the world has to offer that you once chased. And you see, that's the job of the Holy Spirit, to indwell us with his presence, to assure us of his love, to remind our hearts of what Jesus did and to make all of this real to us. And to the degree he does, your motivations will change. 
so that you're serving to give, not to get. Your priorities will change where you're living for God and not for yourself. Your, your actions will change where you're being able to serve others selflessly, even if nobody ever knows about it. And see, that's the only way you can ever truly start to love people, simply out of love for them and not for what you get out of it. Listen, only those who have been assured and comforted by the love of a God who lived and died in your place can finally be honest enough about yourself to say, man, I'm, I'm far worse of a mess than even I'm willing to admit. I don't need to justify my actions. I don't need to defend my actions anymore. I don't need to prove myself anymore. You can lose face without losing anything because you still have the face of God. You still have his pleasure and his acceptance. And Paul says that the gospel message is what makes all this possible. The fact that Jesus lived for me, that takes the pressure off of me having to live right. And Jesus died for me, so that takes the pressure off trying to earn the validation of anything. If you are a child of God, you are loved, you are forgiven, you are beautiful, you have everything that you need given to you as a free gift because of the life and death of your big brother, Jesus. Let the beauty and the wonder of that gospel message take all of the fractured pieces of your life and put them back together again into a whole person who is a beloved, adored, treasured child of the King. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that we are a very fractured people, and we are because we simply don't believe we're that bad or that good. We can't imagine um, that our best efforts aren't enough. We, we can't imagine at times that, well, I really need to repent of that. And then there are other times we just can't believe that we could ever be forgiven, not after I did that or said that. And we think we have to do penance and work our way out of it. And we have to mean it this time. And we have to really be sincere this time. And we've got to prove it. Lord, help for us to believe that all we need is to rest in Jesus, that you have lived and died in our place. And all we need as we approach you is need, the neediness of a heart that can't do anything and rests upon you for everything. Lord, give us the eyes to see that and the faith to believe that in Jesus' name. Amen.